Let's turn in the Bible to 2 Kings chapter 17. We again return to the northern kingdom of Israel. 2 Kings 17. And things look pretty bad. But Israel has been through this before. Even evil King Ahab survived a siege. And so, yes, a a three-year siege of Samaria, the capital city, produces terror, but they've gotten into this kind of mess before. Ahab survived. And then it happened again in 2 Kings chapter 6, where through the miracle, through no fighting of their own, God rescued his people. So surely, surely God can deliver his people again. Things may look bad, but they can't really be that bad. Listen as I read the beginning of this chapter, 2 Kings 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, who had been Shalmaneser's vessel, and had paid paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and he had no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, and on the Harbor River, and in the towns of the Medes. Let me pray as we hear God's word. Father, as we hear these words of judgment, I pray that we would not attempt to sidestep them, that we would not attempt to to ignore them, to push them off on someone else or some other period of history. But Lord, that we would hear your word today as a warning, a warning to us, your people, to turn from sin. Lord, for those that that wonder if your word could be true, if you are the God who speaks, I pray even now, Father in heaven, that you would work by the power of your spirit through this sermon Lord, that you would give me clarity as I speak, but that your word would come with supernatural power. Your ministry itself bringing spiritual understanding, new life to hearts that are, that are dead. Lord, give us faith to believe. Give us the honesty to hear your word. And give us, Lord, your mercy that we might respond to your grace. We come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. When this chapter begins, it it seems like a a glimmer of hope still stands for Israel. They could put their hope in Hosea, the king. The the previous sieges that the nation has faced here in the capital of Samaria, they have withstood those sieges. Ahad, the evil king, defeated his enemies. And then later, when, when they were besieged again, when, when 2 Kings 6 tells us things had gotten so bad that, that children were being boiled and eaten, the prophet of God stood and said, this time tomorrow, 
Flour will be sold here in the marketplace at wholesale prices. You will have all the food that you need. And, and the, the king laughed. And yet God defeated those enemies merely with the sound of an approaching army. A supernatural army made the enemy flee. But the first six verses of 2 Kings 17 show us the overwhelming power of the king of Assyria. Even the repetition of his name and his title in this passage just comes at us like a tidal wave of, of judgment coming. The king of Assyria, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, cannot be defeated. But we had a little bit of hope. Hope here in Hosea. Hosea, the king of Israel. I mean, notice how he's introduced to us in verse 2. Okay, it doesn't start well. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But the author here of, of First and Second Kings gives us a, a glimmer of hope, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. He's bad, but he's a step in the right direction. He's better than we've had before. This king maybe gives us a little bit of hope, and, and we see even his political prowess. He's been a, a vassal paying tribute to Assyria. He's positioned himself as, as this, as this man who, who can navigate the, the international complications here. We see even his willingness to, when things aren't going well with Assyria, to, to plead for help from Egypt. He's a man with political insight. And then even when you just hear the king's name, King Hosea, his name means salvation. King Hosea, salvation is right here on the throne. Surely we will withstand this enemy. But there is no hope in Hosea. There is no salvation here. Hosea is the last king of Israel. The nation destroyed, defeated, sent into exile. And we might be able to, to come up with, with reasons for, for this failure. The historical reasons as you look at the, the great powers of the north, Assyria and then Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, coming down to take this, this territory, fighting against the great power of the south, Egypt. And, and so this little territory here is just a, it's just a bridge between the great powers. It's the, it's the part of the, the playing board in, in, in risk that just gets trampled over again and again as the great armies come and go. This is not a territory you hold on to. This is one that is meant to be exchanged between the great powers. We could give political reasons for the the, the national reasons for the, the exile because of the failures of the policies, the, the politics didn't bring out the, the, the solutions they'd hoped for. We might even be able to, to look at some sociological reasons. Try and get inside Shalmaneser's head. Go look at the, the reliefs and the, the, the monuments that he carved to himself. This great king of Assyria and his lust for power, still on display centuries later, we know his name from the historical record. We might come up with those kinds of reasons. But the Bible gives us a clear reason for this failure, for the exile. It's the sin, the idolatry of the people. There is no hope in Hosea, but there is no hope in their idols. And so let's continue to read this chapter. 2 Kings 17, I'll, I'll continue from verse 7 as we see the theological reason for the exile. 
Verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he, he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and, and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria. They are still there. There was no hope in Hosea, the king. There is no hope in the idols of the people. They followed after the practices of the nations around them, the nations that, that God had rescued them from, the ones whom, whom God had, had given a promise to Abram that, that he would have this land, and then the promised land is given to the people. God is the, the one who, who drove the nations out and, and gave them this place, and yet they follow the practices of the nations. We have here the, the, the picture of the sin of Israel and their persistence, their, their, their powerful pursuit of, of idolatry. N notice the description of this. The description that, that they, listen to, listen to verse 10. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. Do you see how pervasive this is? 
everywhere they could turn from the Lord. They did. On every hill, they placed the, the sacred stones, the Asherah poles, everywhere that they could, they could worship another god. They, they worshiped another. And they've done it for now centuries, turning from God. Now, it, it might be that, that you hear this, this language of idolatry, and you think to yourself, I don't know what an Asherah pole looks like. I don't know that I could tell a sacred stone from an ordinary stone. And even if we placed these kind of temples and these, these places of worship on every high hill, I live in a state where there aren't any high hills. So I think I'm probably pretty good. You and I might be tempted to, to leave this as merely a problem for, for Israel. And yes, your, your pattern of sinful worship might not involve Asherah poles. Likely doesn't involve sacred stones. But you and I take the good things of this world, the gifts that God has given to us, we take them a good thing and we make them an ultimate thing. That's idolatry. That's following the evil desires of our own hearts. We follow the pattern of the nations around us. We look at the things that, that people have and say, well, I should have that. We look at the way they live and say, well, that's how I should live. We look at what they believe and we think, well, that sort of makes a lot of sense to me. We're willing to set aside the truth of God's word for the, the lies that, that are told to us. And you and I, you and I make idols out of the, the gifts that God has given us. Think of the way that, that we can make an idol out of money. And, and, and we're so creative in our own hearts that, that we can do this in multiple ways. Some of us make an idol out of money, a, a good gift, a tool given to us by God to, to be in relationship one with another, to, 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 to pay for goods and services with each other. We take this good gift and we make it ultimate. And we can do it by saying, well, I'm going to need a lot of it. And I'm going to need to keep it. And, and because if I have enough of it here, it will protect me. It'll protect me from the dangers that come in the future. It will make me feel calm and safe and secure. But others of us, well, that's not the way money is a problem for us. We, we, we like money, but, but it's because of what money can do. I mean, money can buy you lots of nice things, and nice things can make you happy. But what's the problem with, with money? If, if your goal is to, is to have enough to to be safe from any future contingency that could threaten you, then how much money would be enough? Well, you need some more than you probably have right now. For any, anything that might come, then you should, be, you should be getting more of it. Or, if money is meant to make you happy, then, then that gift, that toy, that thing that you bought, that experience, that pleasure, well, it, it begins to lose its luster. You need more of it. And so, how much money will you need? You need more. See, if money becomes the idol, the thing that we take, which is a good gift, and we make it ultimate, then it will never be enough. Or maybe let's, let's make it, let's, let's put it in more personal terms. All right, and, and students, kids, those of you that are in here, I, I, want you, I want you to really listen here because I was once a student, and I know it can be really hard wondering what other people think about you. Right? And I grew up in a time before the fact that people could tell me what they thought of me, they would have to do it to my face or maybe behind my back, but they didn't have like a, a, a digital online forum to go to to tell me what they thought of me without having to say it to my face. And so I, I recognize that actually being a student now, I think maybe is a little harder. And, and kids, it's not just 
you that, are, that I'm talking to here. Your desire to, to worry about what other people think of you, talk to your moms and dads. Talk to your Sunday school teachers. It's a problem for all of us. But what happens if we make, if we make take a good gift like friendship and the, the opinions of others? See, we should. We should hold a good reputation among people. We should work to, to be loving. kind. But what if, we, what if we take that good gift and we make it ultimate so that what other people think of me is the most important thing? Well, to make sure other people think highly of me, I have to do the kinds of things they would want me to do, the kinds of things that would, would get me the, the, the acclaim that I desire. And the problem is if you're seeking after the acclaim of, of others, you can never get enough because it's hard to store it up today to get you through the sadness of tomorrow. See, if you take a good gift and you make it the ultimate thing, then, then you've turned it into an idol. And idolatry, idolatry offers no hope. And we, we see that clearly here in this passage. Look with me at verse 15. This, this rich theological truth here, verse 15, that, that whatever you worship will end up controlling your life. You will become like the thing that is most important to you because you will shape your life around it and it will shape you. Look, look at verse 15. The people rejected God's decrees, the covenant he had made with their fathers, and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. That's harsh language for idol worshipers because there is no hope in idols. If you make something that is something that, that doesn't have ultimate value, you make that the thing that matters most to you, then it will transform you into its own image. So if you make money the ultimate thing, then your life will be shaped by decisions about how much you have, how much you spend, what, what, what pleasure it will give you, what protection it offers you. And in the end, what do you have? Well, you have a number, perhaps, maybe by which you can measure your life. But at the very end, what do you have? Maybe a big extravagant funeral with the nicest luncheon anyone's ever seen. But really, what do you have? If your, money, if your life is measured in money, at the end, it's worthless. Or even if your life is measured on the opinion of others, you'll always be balancing it, always be juggling it. And these, these fleeting opinions, these comments on a, on a Facebook page, these, these, the, the slowness of somebody liking your post will be the way that you measure your life. The fleeting opinions become the measure of what you're worth. See, if you worship idols, worthless idols, then you will become worthless, empty, vain, trivial, fleeting. I remember a news story from a, from a few years ago, of, and, and CBS News described her as, as the most famous model whose face you've never seen. Her name is Ellen Sorrow, and, and she is a hand model. And when they kind of ran through the ads, I mean, to be honest, I hadn't noticed her hands in the ads because she's advertising the things she's holding, the things she's doing, but, but she has what are described as flawless hands, perfect skin, elegant fingers, beautiful nails, and, and she can make good money for photo shoots, advertisements, $100 an hour, thousands of dollars an hour if it's a, a, a major campaign, just with her hands. 
the news reporter follows her around through her everyday life. And in her ordinary life, because her hands are worth so much money, in her ordinary life, she covers her hands with gloves and walks without touching anything. She does not open doors. She does not turn on light switches. She cannot cook, clean. She never opens a can. She never does anything with her hands. Now, it sounds like a terrible way to live. I mean, maybe if you're a hand model and you can make thousands of dollars an hour, then you should be careful. Or you're a surgeon and you need to make sure your hands are able to, to save lives. Then, then I'm not saying protecting your vocation is unwise. I'm just saying, think of the way that, that we would make something the most important thing and then we, we spend our whole lives trying to protect it. Her hands have not seen sunlight in 15 years. Because then the light of the camera wouldn't catch it just right. See, but hands are meant to open things, to do things, to serve others. See, when we, when we make something good, the most important thing, then every aspect of our lives will be oriented around this. And, and maybe it's dangerous for me to be talking about idolatry today. It's Super Bowl Sunday. And I'm not just, I'm not just talking about those of you wearing green, because win or lose, you and I are overly invested in a game. I've read countless articles, analyzed the details, and what impact will I have on today's game? None. My knowledge of the, the backgrounds of the players, the stats, the, the, the lineups, not, it, it matters not at all. And yet I'm consumed by it. But even those of you that now think, well, who really cares who wins this stupid game? The Super Bowl is the day in which you and I are glued to our television sets by the tens, hundreds of millions. Because it doesn't matter even the game, it's what happens between the game, right? And in one sense, the, those that make commercials, advertisers, are brilliant theologians. Because they know how your heart works. You go from, ooh, I kind of want that. I really need that. I cannot imagine my life without that thing. R really, watch the commercials. I doubt somebody is going to go through and tell you how much this, this, uh, this cleaning product is better than the other cleaning product on the market. I know there are commercials like that out there. They're not going to spend money on those commercials tonight. What they're going to do, even through the laughter and the silliness, they're going to, they're going to expose your heart of the things that, that will make your life meaningful and valuable. And so this is a day when it's dangerous for us to talk about idolatry because my idols will be most clearly displayed. The things that I want, the things that I chase after, the trophies that at the end, how much is it really worth? See, if I invest my entire life in those kinds of things, then in the end, I'll become, as the Bible describes me, one who is worthless. And so Israel had ignored the warnings of the prophets. This passage is meant to be a warning. A warning not merely to the people of Israel who are, who are going off into exile, an explanation of what's happened to them, but a warning to Judah. I mean, verse 13 says that the Lord warned Israel and Judah through his prophets and seers. This passage is a warning of what happens if you chase after idols. You end up destroying yourself. And it, it's a reminder in verse 21 
of the very beginning of, of the idolatry when the kingdom was torn in pieces because of Solomon's sin. And the northern tribe followed Jeroboam, followed him into idolatry. And so this is to be a warning to the people of Judah, that remaining tribe that watches the, the Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom. This should be a warning for them to say, that's the path we're on. That's what my heart looks like, and I'm going to turn from that sin, and I'm going to turn and follow the Lord. And, and more so, this is a warning to us, to us. The, the book of Hebrews tells us that the, the Old Testament is meant to be a warning. The sin of the people of the Old Testament is meant to be a warning to us. In Hebrews chapter 12, we've, 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 in, in, this, in this New Testament book, we've seen the way in which the people in the past failed. Chapter 12 reminds us of the sin of, of Esau, the sin of the people during the time of Moses, the sin of Cain. And we're warned that in verse 25 of Hebrews 12, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. God is speaking now. Because if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? See, this Old Testament passage is a warning to us of the danger of idolatry. And so this passage then does offer us hope. There is no hope in Hosea the king. There is no hope in idolatry, but there is hope here in the Lord. Think with me of the, the glimpses of God's mercy and grace, his redemption, his rescue that we see in this passage. Go back again to verse 7, where this theological explanation for the exile begins. Verse 7, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. Who is he? He's the Lord who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He is the rescuing covenant God. And remember, that's the, the very way in which even God's commands to the people, the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And he warned them not to disobey. And, and, and what, what is the very first command that God gives? You shall have no other gods. And what is the very first sin? How does verse 7 continue? They worshiped other gods. It's like reading the book of Exodus in the negative. God again says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Do not worship other gods. And this is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, and they worshiped other gods. It's the failure, the primary failure of their hearts and ours, chasing after the things of this world, following the practices of the nations. God had given them the promised land. Not merely the promise of a land, but the actual physical promised land for them. And they gave it up by chasing after, chasing after the ways of the world. We see their, their worship of idols. Verse 12, they worship the idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. My Bible actually tells me, well, where did God say this? Where did God say, you shall not do this? Gives me a little footnote. Exodus 20. Oh, that's right. That's the Ten Commandments again. The very first commandment. The primary rule. You shall not worship other gods. And they turn away from the Lord. Verse 13, again, the reminder of God's patience, his warning coming. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Again, 
and again we see the grace of God as you read through the Old Testament. Again and again, God shows mercy to the people. But they provoke him to anger. We see the Lord's anger in this passage. Verse verse 18 shows us the height of his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. The Lord was very angry. And the anger of God can can be off-putting to us. We might think, "I, I just don't like the kind of guy who stands on the edge, just kind of looking at what I'm doing, waiting for me to make a mistake. It seems like God's this cruel, vindictive, evil guy, kind of just waiting for me to stumble so he can pounce. But that's not the description here. Even though God is described here as very angry, it's a description of God's perpetual patience in warning them again and again. God's extension of mercy to the people. And really, when we, when we get down to it, You and I need verse 18. We need a Lord who gets very angry at idolatry and sin. Because anytime you and I stop and say, this is wrong, this is not right, this is injustice, this is abuse, this has to be stopped, anytime you and I do that, we are saying there is a standard of right and wrong. We're desperate for a God who has a standard, who is the very standard for us, a God who promises justice. And so the people lose the presence of God. They are cast away. They no longer know him as the the gracious covenant Lord. They know him as the, the Lord who brings his wrath because they have failed to keep the covenant. And so there is no hope in Hosea. There is no hope in idols. But there is hope here because salvation comes from the Lord. I mean, Hosea's name means salvation. It's very similar in in structure to Joshua's name before it. The Lord saves, which is the name of Jesus. The Lord who saves. Think of the announcement that comes from the angel to, to Joseph. You were to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, because Yahweh saves. That's what his name means. Hosea's name is merely the announcement of salvation. Joshua's name, Jesus' name, Yeshua, is the, is the announcement that God, Yahweh, is the one who saves. Jesus is the one of greatest worth. Think of how the gospel works. Jesus, the one of infinite worth, the one who speaks the universe into existence, the one who controls the march of armies across Assyria. He is born a child born a child and yet a king, a king who then is of infinite worth but treated as worthless, despised, beaten, rejected. Jesus goes to the cross for us. Jesus, the one of infinite worth, is treated as worthless. He gives himself for us. But think of what he does in that. What does he do for us if you turn and worship Jesus? See, if you worship money, you will measure your life by it, and your life will end up being worthless. If you measure, the opinion of, measure your life by the opinion of others, then your life will en- ultimately end up being worthless. But if you measure your life by the, the worship of Jesus, the true king, the one of infinite worth, then what does he do for you? He makes you worthy. 
He makes you worthy because he gives you his righteous standing before God. His goodness becomes yours. His eternal riches, which stretch from eternity past into eternity future, become yours. You are are counted as one who is worthy because the object of your worth is the one of infinite worth, Jesus, the true king. And so this passage is a warning for us, but it's also a call for us to turn from our sin, to turn from our evil ways, to stop worshiping idols and to worship the true king, Jesus. True worship is the acknowledgement of the grace of God, even in God's judgment. True worship requires us to admit our failures, our sin, and to turn from that sin and to follow God. True worship casts aside idols, considers them worthless in order to turn and worship the true King Jesus. True worship finds joy in the obedience of God's commands because our lives have been transformed. He has made us worthy and able to follow after him because he is the Lord, the Lord who rescues his people, the Lord who sends Jesus to be our king, the king of infinite worth, is worthy of your praise. Let's come before him now in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word speaks truth to us, and and yet, Father, I know that I am, am quick to shimmy out from under the weight of your word, to set it aside, to, to lay it on others without, without applying the, the power of your word to my own heart. And so, Lord, I pray that you would let the weight of judgment show us the, the depth of our sins so that we would turn from sin. Lord, that we would see the weight of judgment even now in this sacrament, in the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We would be reminded of of his love poured out. And Lord, we would be empowered to live lives of obedience. For those that, that put their trust in Jesus, Lord, I pray that they would, those that have not put their trust in Jesus, I pray that they would do that now. Even as I pray, even as we, we come to this sacrament, that seeing the gospel, they would respond to your mercy and love. Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior. Amen.